When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Sentimental in the City, a mini-series where we talk about each season of Sex and the City for the great American novel it truly is. My name is Karina Dunhu and I'm a sparsely attended learning analyst class. Joining me is the politician you're never too prudy to piss on, Dolly Alderton. Hello. Hello. Fuck it. Let's not talk about series three. Let's just talk about Bill Kelly, piss politician. <laughs> I love that his name is Bill Kelly. I love that he goes on to be Roger Sterling in Mad yeah. Men. But I love most of all that we've never had a conversation about Sex in the City where you didn't bring up Bill Kelly. <laughs> He's my dream man. He is my dream man. And do you know what? I know this is going to get chat back because I did an Instagram story once saying that Bill Kelly is not only just my Sex and the City dream man, but he is my dream man full mm. stop. Like, wait, I wait, think what was your, what was the clap back that you got? Just people being like, what the fuck? He's a, he's a piss lover. Oh, grow up. <laughs> <laughs> I know. if, like, we are living in an age where like, like stepbrother porn and stepsister porn is like the number one thing on yeah. every main porn site. Like a bit of piss is absolute child's play. In, Get a in life. the words of Hugh Abbott in my favourite Thick of It episode that I have made you watch numerous times, it's just a bit of piss. <laughs> For God's sake, it's just a bit of piss. It's just a bit of piss and you're supposed to be a sex columnist. Like, come on. <laughs> We're going to get into Bill Kelly and his uh, piss fetish beat by beat in just a minute. But before then, I want you to remind us why we're all here. Yes, of course. Caroline and I like doing this manifesto at the beginning of every episode as if we are begging for funding for this for this miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is our Arts Council funding video. This is our Kickstarter. <laughs> here's, here's why we haven't gotten everyone's rewards yet, everyone. This is our that, yes. I don't know why we feel like we have to do it, but we do. No, I think we do. We do. So this is not going to be an episode by episode analysis. If you want that, we highly recommend Juno Dawson's podcast, which Caroline guested on this week and had a fabulous time. Yes, I did with an episode from this season. Oh yeah, it was Frenemies, wasn't it? Yes, it was Frenemies. Yeah, I can't wait to listen to that. This is not going to be a judgment or a breakdown of the more problematic elements of the show, although we will talk about them if they come up. And my God, does season three have a lot of them. Oh, it's jam-packed in season three. This is not going to be a place where we roll our eyes about things people have rolled their eyes about before, because here's the thing. Caroline and I are always very surprised when we hear people saying they're fans of the show, and then they just slag off the show. What happened to <laughs> fandom? What happened to the glory of fandom? Fandom is irrational. It, it's it's not discerning. It's full of love. It's blind, foolish love. So that's what you're going to get here. Foolish love. Yes. 
Yes, the thing about fandom, it's, a, it's not that the people who are in a fandom don't know about the problematic or annoying elements of a show. It's that they know those things and they chose to ignore them anyway. And that is what love is. <laughs> At its most base form, love is knowing the flaws of something and choosing to love it anyway. And maybe the people who can't understand fandom, maybe they can't have fulfilling relationships either. I'm just saying. <laughs> This is not going to be jam-packed with Sex in the City trivia, but if you're interested, we recommend Sex in the City and Us by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. We're interested in stepping back and looking at each season as an individual piece of work and look at the themes, character journeys and lasting messages of it. We don't know the most about Sex in the we City. We feel the most about Sex in the City. <laughs> I wanted to kick off by mm. talking about that first episode. Yes. I think that opening is painfully poetic. Go on. So the girls are, it's completely silent, and the girls are standing on the Staten Island Ferry looking back on Manhattan. And for me, it feels like almost a theatrical prologue to... <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a gentle balance to Caroline because Caroline likes it when, when people are sincere about things that they love <laughs> and then and then she thinks they're just full of shit <laughs> if no, it go, I love if it goes, this I love it, it was just every, time, every week when we plug in to do this I'm just reminded by how much I love you in this <laughs> <laughs> it's just you have a sincerity <laughs> dial and you're so patient with it and then it just tips a little bit too far into film studies course. Um, anyway, so there's... Caroline and I will be talking about the fact that this series has a very theatrical tone mm. to it. Mm. And I think that this feels like, yeah, like the prologue to a play. And there's something I find very profound about them gazing on <laughs> to Manhattan onto their island to gain this sense of perspective and almost have this sense, because they go to Staten Island in the first half of episode one, and it's almost as if they're the man on the moon looking back to <laughs> wow. Earth. Yes, no, it is, it's very that. And the, you know, look, seeing how small it all is and this thing of like, oh, can you believe all of our ex-boyfriends are on that one mm. island? And it's very quiet and it feels like... And they're all kind of huddled up and they're all yeah. cold. It feels Beautiful. very Ellis Islandy. It's yeah. like... Yeah, and I also think as well that so much post-series one, I'm so interested in how much each series is a conversation to cri with criticism. And yeah. I think one of the main themes of this series that we'll, that we'll get onto, I think is a direct conversation with the critics. And I do wonder if opening like this is a conversation with the critics, which is about perspective and about how tiny Manhattan is, and about how rarefied and small this world is. I just think it's a very beautiful beginning. Oh, that had never occurred to me, but I do love that, right? Because, like, we talked about that last time, didn't we? Where we talked about, like, how, particularly that circumcision episode, yeah. where it's like, they, they know they're talking to and about New Yorkers, 
And, yeah. you know, that's what the, those columns were. They were like, they weren't just for New Yorkers. They were for about 600 people within like mm-hmm. a very exclusive set who all kind of knew each other by their little sort of pen names that Candace Bushnell would give them. And mm-hmm. so this sense of like them zooming out. And then for for that whole episode when they're on Staten Island, it's very, um, it's very regional. Like the people they come mm-hmm. across are like ordinary people and they sort of treat them sort of semi-exotically. And it's yeah. like, it's very it's very charming and they have a lot of fun. And like, I just, I never watched that episode without smiling. I love that episode. I think it's such a banger of an opening episode. It also includes, I think, one of the most unforgivable puns of the whole show, which oh, is God. they're at this firefighter's, like, very camp beauty pageant where these like Mm. ripped firefighters from all of the different boroughs of New York are getting naked and like doing a sexy dance. And the woman, one of the guys goes on stage and the woman calling out their name says, this is whoever, and he's from lower Manhattan. And Samantha stands in front of him and says, "Mm, I think I'd like him to be near my lower Manhattan. I think with these Samantha lines, season three is when they stop trying. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That is really when lowest hanging fruit became the best for them. And like even Samantha's sort of trajectory outfit wise gets much draggier this season. It does. Like I feel it like does. season one and two, she dresses like a femme fatale. It's like lots of like neutrals and like silks and really expensive looking fabrics. And then she wears like quite a few like blue bedazzled pantsuits in this one. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. There's a lot of like that kind of fruity Samantha Jones style that we sort of typically think of when we think of her starts coming into play this season. And so do a lot of those kind of like, why don't you come up and see me sometime? Like yeah. lines. I feel like we get much more of them. And like yeah. it really does like... Yeah, yeah. There's so many of them in this episode. Like, oh, I like him to climb up my pole. It's very, <laughs> it's very May West. Like, it's very 1920s. It is. It is. Yeah, you're right. I really do think that this series is the like fine finessing and polishing of the of the extremities of Samantha. You're so right about her style because series one and two, she's actually very demure. And it's it's yeah. she looks much older than she does in like the final series. And then this series, she really does kind of step into a very particular style that I found so inspiring that I did find myself this week looking up gold leather trench coats on eBay, I'm afraid. I think you would rock that gold leather trench coat. I can Thanks, see it babe. for you. Thank you. So the big themes of season three, I think just for people who haven't sort of hit it recently, even though I think every woman I know is rewatching the series at the moment just because there's fuck all else to do left in the world. Um, so the big beats of season three are obviously Carrie and Aiden, Charlotte and the McDougals, the affair with Big, mm-hmm. um, the end of Miranda and Steve... And the fact that every woman in this show hates dogs. I can't believe it. I saw in the notes that you put that as a, as a big theme. <laughs> I was like, is it a big theme? They hate dogs. Pete, Pete Scout. Yeah, yeah. Getting turfed out onto the street every which way. 
Yeah. <laughs> As a dog owner, I'm concerned by the lack of regard for Pete's safety and well-being prominently displayed by Carrie throughout this season. <laughs> Pete hates her as well. It's two goes two ways. From day one, they hate one another. Yeah. <laughs> so, something yeah. you've also written in the notes, which was Pete knows. <laughs> he does know. He does know. He knows. Pete knows. He knows. Yeah. Um, so this this whole miniseries is based on the idea that uh, we are talking about each season of Sex and the City for the great American novel it truly is. Now, you and I have different opinions sometimes of what that great novel is. Mm. For me, the great American novel of season three is the thesis that the thing that stands between you and a happy life is you. Interesting. So the main arc being sort of Carrie meets Aiden, who is sort of this perfect, wonderful person who is immediately in love with her, immediately commits to her. And she, you know, can't, she can't deal with the lack of drama. She can't deal with the fact that he's sincere. And then she ruins her own life. And so it's this Mm. sort of thing of like, of like, oh, even when you get all these things that you think that you want, you will still intentionally stand in your own way because mm. and it's the, it's the thing that we always hear of like women who struggled with love for a long time and then they find the love of their lives and you go how do you do it and they say I, I worked on myself it's all you know it's like yeah. ultimately that's always the thing um, and then you also have this thing of like Charlotte thinks she can sort of her type A personality she can micromanage her way into a perfect life and she starts with season with episode one being like, I am going to get married this year. And the whole, the first sort of six episodes are a thing of like her gamifying marriage. Yes. And, and it, it works because she gets with Trey, right? And then she kind of get, she tries to gamify Trey, right? She mm. tries to do this born again virgin thing and it blows up in her face. And I do think that this thing of like, and Miranda as well with Steve, where they're all faced with, they're all given these beautiful opportunities and all of their individual personality flaws just slaps the cake over, you know? Yeah. God, that's very persuasive. (laughs) What is your great American novel? My great American novel for this series is the intersection between morality and sexuality. So I think a lot of this series looks at the ethics of sexuality. Um, I wonder how much of that is a response to criticism because it feels mm. to me like that theme that's explored over however many, 18 episodes of the series is a response to potentially the legitimate question of whether Sex in the City glorifies promiscuity or mm. simplifies promiscuity. And mm. in this series, you have... Is this this is the series where Miranda gets chlamydia, isn't it? And she has yes, to ring is, all her yeah. partners. Yeah, you have that. You have Samantha having HIV anxiety. She's too scared to get an HIV test. You obviously have an extramarital affair with Big and Carrie. You have the Madonna whore complex with Trey. And you have Bill Kelly in the piss. So I think so much of this series is, yeah, about these questions of, sexuality and the idea of goodness i i think you're right i think they're both compelling novels <laughs> both compelling blurbs for compelling novels and they do intersect i also think as well to your point because i think i also think that this is the series as well that has the most ish moments you know yeah yeah where you're yeah. just like 
oh, guys, did you have to kind of thing. So mm. this is a series that has that really dodgy episode about bisexuality. So an episode right after that is when Samantha starts going out with the black A&R guy and his sister uh, starts sort of saying that she can't go out with him and it becomes this sort of like, quote unquote, like reverse racism trope. And it's just really, it's just not it, you know? <laughs> it's, it's just really, really uncomfortable, that episode. I really, it's, it's really like, uncomfortable. Mm. And you're right, it's um, it's a particular double whammy with the bisexuality episode before it that I, watching it this time around, I found so shocking. Yeah. Like, this thing of... I mean, so many of um, the sort of sex plot beats, especially the ones that Carrie goes through, can, can be sort of related back to this idea of like, hang on, you're a sex columnist and this is the first time you've dated a bisexual guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then there's this thing of like, uh, you know, she, she finds it so kind of icky and repulsive throughout. Then she goes to this sort of house. And she brings that repulsion to him. That's the thing that I find yeah. so shocking. She brings it to him persistently. So it's not even like she's having these, you know, strange reactions to his bisexuality that she's like venting in the kind of sacred space of her friends, which as an audience member we see, it's like she 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 takes it to him being like, I'm finding this weird. You're weird, basically. And she yeah, does it you're weird. loads to him. It's, and it's funny as well because it's like it's a thing it's a continuation of the Bill Kelly piss politician thing of where her trying to get on board with it she's actually unable of being having any grace in those no. moments like when she's with Bill she's like he's asked her you know and and sorry I know that we're jumping all over the place but I will loop back to the bisexuality thing where he they're in bed and they're having a great time like he says I think the, the exchange is literally like if you were to write into an agony ant, which you are, and said, I would like this specific kink in bed. How do I ask my partner or spouse or whatever to ask for it? This would be the advice you would give. He says, yes. I love sleeping with you. Is there anything that you I could do that I'm not doing? And she says, no. And he, she says, is there anything I could do for you that I'm doing? And he says, no, you're perfect, whatever. However, I do think it would be kind of hot if we got in the shower, got all clean, and then you peed on me. Yeah. And then it's like this ew, gross out moment. But it's like the, yeah. the perfect way that somebody could ask for like a kink in bed. Totally. And then she sort of like dodges it and avoids it and all this, the whole episode. And then she kind of goes in, he goes into the shower. She sits on the clothes lid of the toilet and she's so visibly grossed out and condescending about mm. it. She's like, I don't think I can do that. Maybe I can dribble warm tea on you or like like if if you had asked like your girl your boyfriend or girlfriend for something in bed and they came back to you with that energy of course you would dump them there and then yeah like, and actually it says so much i think about the the mess of heterosexuality and how difficult we find it to communicate with each other in that is that she she shames him and humiliates him by saying that and he responds by slot shaming her it's like they both yeah. use this weaponry against each other that takes them both to a place of like primal humiliation. Can I talk about Bill Kelly now just really briefly? Yes. I think if someone said to you who would be the perfect man for Dolly, mm. you would list all the qualities of Bill Kelly. Bill Kelly is so mischievous 
which is my number one quality in a partner. Yeah. He's so funny. He's so charming. He's great with her friends. Yes. Yes, he is. He thinks she's so smart. He's so into her. Also, the only boyfriend she ever has who reads her work and likes it. Yes. Like, he's he's like always bringing it up with her. He loves it. He's not, like, threatened right. by her career. Obviously, there's that thing at the end where he says, oh, my team think that you write too much about sex. But I really do think that that, that is him lashing out because she'd been, she kind of kink shamed him. I just don't see why they couldn't have made it work. He is, he's ambitious. He's successful. He's alpha. He's just like, he's the dream. Look, if she doesn't like piss, she doesn't like piss. That's fine. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I just think it's a tragedy. I watched those Bill Kelly episodes and I think it is a modern tragedy. (laughs) It is a tragedy. And like, I always, when I watch them as well, because he's over, I think maybe two episodes, even though, Mm. because the performance is so good, it feels like it should be more episodes. And I always remember it as if it's more episodes, but no. Um, And... I always feel like they planned a bigger arc for him. And then for some, maybe the actor had different commitments or maybe it wasn't working out, you know, chemistry-wise backstage or something. And they quickly wrote him out because it felt like, obviously they were setting up Carrie to have a new boyfriend this season who would go head-to-head with Big. And if I was in the writer's room, I would be like, okay, who will we have go head-to-head with Big? How about somebody who's even more Mr. Bigger? Like he's he 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 doesn't just like live in this city; he fucking runs this city. And like, how how great would that be? And then obviously they subvert it in the end, and they go with Aiden, who's the folksy woodsy guy, and that's a different way of subverting it, which is also a good call. But I can totally see how they would think like, oh, we're gonna have Mr. Big and Mr. Bigger, and we're gonna have them like measure dicks against each other, and like, how hot would that be? Yeah. (laughs) Imagine Bill Kelly and Mr. Big making out. Oh my god, so hot! (laughs) So hot. I have so much to say about the homoerotic um, tension oh, yeah. of this series. Um, yeah. But I'm going to get to it when we get to it because I feel like I, I want to get back to my original bisexuality thing. Yes. Which links in here. So we've got Carrie then being grossed out by bisexuals as well, which is gross. And you know, she gets off the Lannis more set and then she sort of leaves this party and she sort of like goes down this fire escape and she's like lighting her cigarette and she's like, you know, maybe I'm too old, maybe I'm too conservative, but it's time for me to sling my hook and go. And she's acting like she's leaving a fucking orgy or something where everyone's pounding each other senseless. <laughs> and like they were playing spin the bottle, it's mental. Um, but I feel like these incredibly <laughs> strange episodes that happen in the middle of the season with the bisexuality, with their comments on race, with all, with a lot of stuff that comes up, feels like a reflection of Sex and the City's own arrogance at this point in their run. Mm. This is the point where I think they became serialized for the first time. So I think, the first of all, the humour is going really broad. And second of all, I think the there's a sense coming from it being like, well, okay, we're the big sex show. And so it's our job to comment on sex things. And yeah. so it often feels like it's them sticking their like hand into a hat, pulling out, you know, race and or bisexuality or piss. And then being like, 
well, okay, let's let's um let's see. Well, I mean, we're we're Sex in the City. We're the writers' team. We can handle this. And then they just like dive into it. They go in with their first impressions. Mm. They snap their fingers at each other in the writers' room. They write the episode. They go. When any writer now will tell you, and I think this is a very and you you've been in writers' room, so you you'll know more than me. People will now say, look, there are no bisexuals in the room or look, there are no black people or people of color in this room. I yeah. think we really need to get some different perspectives in here. Yeah. And that it just it's so obvious that that wasn't happening in this series. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also think that something that I've learned about storytelling is what feels so tempting is particularly as a journalist and obviously journalism is very different to to kind of fiction narrative i think it's it's always a bad idea when you're writing stories or you're writing tv to start with a theme as the foundation of the story mm, and yeah. then layer on characters and plot and actually it it can't be it can't it should like those stories should be a vehicle for ideas and questions but that should really be like the final layer that you put on top of a story and actually what should be like the driving force of a story is characters behaving either true to form or exploring outside like exploring things outside of what we normally see them do within the realms of their personality and then you cram in all that delicious like connective thematic issue stuff mm. And it feels like some of these episodes, it was done sort of topsy-turvy. I completely agree. And yeah, and this thing of like, people going into an ex- like a writing exercise or a theme or a subject, already knowing how they feel about something and then mm. not really looking to discover more, you know? And that's why they feel... Like both, ep- like all these episodes, like there's they're good writing. Like there's good jokes, there's good stuff said, there's good performances. But it just if what's jarring about it is how shallow it feels. Like, and I think because this is a deep show, because I think and I think the reason that people go back to it so much is how deep it and how like a real world it actually feels. Mm-hmm. Like I was I was thinking when I was watching it this time around of being like. I feel like I have slept in Miranda's peach sheets because I've seen them so much. And like even this idea of having a character who has a certain set of sheets yeah. or like Carrie's wardrobe where I remember reading a detail how they always like swap around her hanger so it looks more lived in. Yeah. And this thing of like, this world is such a real world to me and it's like a little like dollhouse I got to play in when I'm feeling low which is why I, I'm so committed to this kind of fandom and so when something is written in a shallow way that doesn't feel thought through it mm. clangs so heavily in a yeah, way it wouldn't clang if it was happening on Friends you know totally I agree and actually I think Carrie's reaction to the bisexuality and to Bill Kelly's fetish I think what feels jarring is I don't think knowing our friend Carrie as well as we do and the psychology that's been built of that person, I just don't think she'd be that thrown or bothered by it. Do you think that our brains are broken? Do you think that we, we don't really understand the extent to which you and I have been shaped by like 
modern porn and the way that like like for for a millennial or younger or really who's grown up with a certain amount of access to pornography yeah 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 you I have to try right. really hard to be yeah. shocked and i think maybe yeah. was this more shocking you know in 2001 or whatever yeah i think i think you're right and do you know what? the episode where i think that becomes so apparent is i'm always so surprised when i watch um the episode when they're in LA in this series where Carrie goes to get a bikini wax mm. and she gets a Brazilian. And this would have been like, what, turn of the century, like 2002, maybe 2001, 2002. Yeah. So not that long ago. And there's this like really expositional bit where Carrie says like, oh my God, like she waxed my whole uh, vagina and Samantha has to be like, oh, yeah, it's a Brazilian. Everyone's <laughs> doing it. It's where they wax your a-hole and your labia or whatever. Like they had to they had to explain that to the audience. Like Brazilians, mm. the notion of like getting anything waxed other than up to the top of your thigh was so strange and and explicit and pornified that even in the early noughties they needed to that was like a shocking storyline and they had to explain it to the audience whereas now it's probably like if you were talking about a group of modern women it would probably be more shocking if one of them like as characters on on Mm. screen it would probably be more of a like funny personality quirk if one of the women didn't get a brazilian you know didn't get waxed and and weirdly enough, we have that in the first movie where it's yeah. like Miranda's got like a full bush going on and they all kind of like take the piss out of her a bit and it becomes a sort of reflection on sort of standards slipping kind of thing, which is like a little bit depressing. But um, I feel like we're doing that thing that we hate. What? Where, where we're not we're not staying true to... To the love of the fandom. <laughs> oh no, we're not. But what I, what I do, I do agree with you that I think that um, we have to remember how much of a kind of sex positivity yeah. energy our brains would have absorbed um, over the last kind of 10 years that we're probably not, even if we're not engaged with that movement um, and how that, yeah, m- maybe we are applying a 2021 head to the yeah. the, the piss and the bisexuality. <laughs> <laughs> and, but do you know what made an episode in this series that, made me oddly melancholy. Oh, tell me. Was, there's this episode where Charlotte's going out with this, like, lovely, very sweet guy. And then when they have sex, every time he comes, oh. he screams, you fucking it's bitch, horrible. you fucking whore. Yeah, yeah. And she's, she's really upset by it. And when she, and he, when he, when he, she says it to him, he's so shocked by it and he's appalled. And they're both kind of appalled. And, you know, then it's sort of the kind of end is like he 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 couldn't really have sex without saying it. So he goes to therapy. Yeah. So he goes to therapy, and it it really made me think how hardened totally millennial women and younger are to to sex. Where like I don't think many of the women I know would bat an eyelid. Standard practice, know? mate. That is. Mm. A kiss and calling you my darling. <laughs> and like, which is which is not to say that like people don't get off on that and like, you know, let's not cast aspersions anywhere. But it's, yeah, yeah. it's mad to me how that has been internalized as utterly 
normal behavior now. Yeah, and totally. When you see Charlotte yeah. being so deeply hurt by it in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's a it's a sensitive thing to talk about, isn't it? Because there's, um, you know, there are a lot of people for whom that that kind of language is very much what they desire. And that's totally chill. But I think what you're saying is that I agree that it's now like the same level of default baseline sexuality of like missionary sex. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if a yeah. woman had sex with someone and he was like, you're a whore or like you're a filthy whore, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we're just friends with loads of whores. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine my friend ringing me really hurt being like, he thinks I'm a whore. It just feels like part part of the sexual lexicon that we've absorbed by default from pornography. Like, I, I really do feel that like those early episodes of Samantha having sex, it's always like very intimate. It's like a lot of kissing and it's really tender and it's really, um, it feels really connected. And I do, I'm not, I'm not moralizing or saying one is bad or good. It's just an interesting metamorphosis. Like I'm sure it will change again, but it does feel like we're in a period of like those more hardcore kinks that are shown on Sex and the City just feel just part of sexual repertoire now. It's so weird how like something when you're looking at something that has defined so much of the co- the modern cultural conversation around sex, has introduced so many concepts about sex into society, and then looking back on it post-U-porn, post-Redshoe, post-everything, and to see how, how much things have moved on, sometimes not for the better, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think we have so much to say about Carrie and Aiden because this is where we meet. This is Aiden part one, right? Like this yeah. season. We hate him. <laughs> <laughs> we know Loki. It's weird. I remember okay. watching it when I was younger and I really was like, oh, I'm going to marry an Aiden. I'm going to marry an Aiden. And then this time yes. around, did you have the same? I think so. Yeah, I think I I think it's one of those things where it's like every teenage girl was in love with Aiden. Mm. I think probably because he was tall and most of us were taller than our contemporary boys. Um and I think it became the obvious choice. And now I think it's become trendy to be an Aiden hater a little bit. I think there there doesn't appear to be any Aiden neutral stance that one can take. I think the thing that I find now, you know, I I totally get why you'd be drawn to an Aiden. I think um, that he's sexy. I think the thing that I feel now when I watch Aiden and Carrie is that they don't talk to each other. Not like adults, they don't. <laughs> they talk like babies. And actually, so in you you really establish in this series, and it comes back in series four, how Freudian that relationship is. She acts like his daughter all the time. Like, the, there's, there's that bit when she goes and fucks big, fucks him rotten, and then goes and wakes him up in the middle of the night. And he's like, oh, he gave me a hug and it had just been a big bad dream Daddy. oh my god you're so right that so happens like several times yeah yeah when she's like and like and i came home oh. and like oh easy i'm so small and he's so big she loves how small she is i think 
And it's like, there's this... Like Sorry, this that's unfair. With... I have to say, just as a thunderously huge six-foot woman, <laughs> I'm always really resentful of women who get to be your teeny tiny Polly Pocket lady. With <laughs> I know, yeah, I mean, yeah, as a 5'9 woman, I feel similarly. And then they're like... To you, they pretend like they're jealous and you know they're not. <laughs> they're not jealous. They're not jealous. <laughs> we'll get back to Aiden and the affair and Big later, because that's a big old chunk. But frankly, I don't think that Aiden of himself is that interesting. So weird. I actually was just thinking, I don't think I've got that much to say about Aiden and Carrie. He's not that interesting, is he? Yeah. That's the Aiden neutral take, right? Is that... Kind of mm. bad clothes, double necklaces, and him saying, emu. <laughs> Three down, hey, little emu. Lady. <laughs> hey, you do a great, you've, you've held it back, but you do a very good, Aiden. Go on. I do. So we're in a Sex and the City group with Sophie Wilkinson and Monica Heisey. Hello to you both. Um, and uh, I was doing a little uh, voice note impression of how how Aiden and Carrie speak to one another, which is not like human beings, but like two four year olds playing at house. <laughs> and yeah, he like yeah. he basically like comes into her apartment. and He's like, oh, "Hey little lady, I got my sandblaster out for you. Gonna do up your floors real good." And she goes, "Oh, okie dokie, daddy doody." <laughs> And it's like, what are you doing? Who is this for? It's really, it's, I can't believe I, I ever didn't see it. Okie dokie, daddy doody. Yeah, and like, it's so embarrassing. Much of, No, I think, no, I, I you know what, I, I don't want to lean in too heavily into the, into the Aiden negativity because I think some of it is very sweet and like, I do believe that sort of like first flush when they're all kind of, you know, in the bed all the time, feeding each other Chinese food. There's kind of a Ouija board, yeah. you know, just out of screen. Yeah. And it's 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 hot and sexy and he's very tall and she's very small and it's not great for them both. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, but I think we should, we need to park ourselves where we actually want to be, which is right in the McDougal's. I'm obsessed with the McDougal's. And before we say anything about the McDougals, I want you to share your theory that I think in 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 the other life where you and I have a civil partnership, <laughs> this would be in my speech the moment that I said I knew I was in love with you when you when you shared this theory with me about the McDougal family. Yes. So thank you very much. That's very flattering. Um, and <laughs> I think the McDougals. In Second City, which for anyone who can't quite remember, is when Charlotte meets Trey, uh, the way Trey is introduced is uh, a a heart surgeon who comes from family money, which is a kind of a introduction, which is quite typical of how men are introduced, right? A kind of a blah, mm. blah, blah, with blah, 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 but becomes this big, huge thing because the family that Trey comes from is so well furnished, so well written, so believable, so full of nuance, so full of observation of people who I really believe really exist that I can only yeah. come to the conclusion that the reason the McDougals exist is because one of the writers of Sex and the City, whether it's Jenny Bix or Darren Starr or whoever is trying to impress someone who they met in the theatre. <laughs> yes. And they're writing a kind of, um, I don't know, 
theatre well enough to know the exact playwright's reference, but like this very sort of stagey Philadelphia kind of like... It's basically Bonnie McDougal is a character Catherine Hepburn would play on stage in the latter years of yes. her life. It's very yes. mannered. It's very full. It's full of longing and restraint and boundaries. And it's just like, and all of this sort of like when I was watching it with you one night, it all bubbled to the front of my brain and I just hit the space button to press pause on the laptop. And I just went, this is very a play. <laughs> Very a play. And once you have this theory lodged firmly in your mind, every time you see the McDougals on screen being being witty and arch with each other, imagine you're in a black box theatre and all they have for props are some wooden yeah. blocks. And yeah. imagine that actually what you're going to see, you're not watching Sex and City on your laptop, you are in the Almeida and you're watching something called The McDougals Are Coming For Supper. <laughs> the McDougals Are Coming For Supper. And you can really, I can really imagine them just like pulling blocks together and being like, well, now it's a love seat. Now it's a double bed. Now it's a dining table. <laughs> it, it's so weird. Like the minute that you said it to me, I was like, the dialogue between the McDougals, it's like, it's not even from a different show. It's like, it's from a play. Yeah. And I do think it's a really interesting observation of yours that like, when you're a professional writer, it doesn't matter where you are in your game. It doesn't matter how commercial or niche you are. You will have a writer who lives in your head. I have one. Mm -hmm. She's a woman whose work I truly respect and love and admire. She's incredibly intelligent. I regret to inform you that she thinks I am an absolute moron. <laughs> <laughs> and she thinks that my work has, I imagine, the same sort of literary quality as Mrs. Brown's boys. And she, I'm obsessed with her and I'm obsessed with her work. Um, I, and for, I don't, for the listeners, I personally think she's a hack, but whatever. <laughs> and I forget that she lives in my head and every writer has one and then occasionally I'll be writing an agony aunt column and I'll just like throw in a completely erroneous reference to Dickens and in that moment I'm like mm. oh there she is she's there with her elegant slash of red lipstick swinging her LRB tote bag she's living there living there she's absolutely living in my head absolutely rent free and I'm just trying so hard to prove to her, no, no, I can be, I can be clever and I can be cool. And actually what you realise you're doing is the, the, per, the writer who lives in your head, it's actually nothing to do with them. They are the mere sock puppet that is animated by your own self-loathing. So circling back, I became quite obsessed with working out who the Michael Patrick King theatre person is and I did I did google that he was part of like a theatre improv group did you see this yes yes I have and I was like nothing would make me happier if I just saw the name David Mamet and then I would know why the McDougals exist <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's so correct um <laughs> Matthew Michael Patrick King his eternal grudge match with David Mamet <laughs> And that's why the McDougals exist. From the minute they are introduced, they are exquisite. And you can tell, the thing is, it's like, I love them. their dialogue is so detailed and nuanced and full of like parenthetical and 
Like, it feels like someone really took time to craft the McDougals in a way that you would only do if you were trying to prove a point to somebody else. Totally. (laughs) And also, it makes so much sense with that family coming into Charlotte's life. Because Trey looks like a Ken doll. He has... Mm. And also, no job is more is more revered in Manhattan than being a heart surgeon. Mm. Like everything and like the Scottish heritage and even that moment where they break up, where he's on a tennis court surrounded by roses and they must have done something to the grade that it looks like you're in The Wizard of Oz when she wakes up in colour. It looks like a dream sequence. And he's like naked, pouring with sweat. Like, you couldn't get anything more perfect. Everything she wanted, she got, and it became her worst nightmare. Oh, you're so you're so right about how those sequences in, in Connecticut are always shot. There, It is the roses that are really, like, blood red, and, like, I remember the first time I saw that, like, Charlotte kissing the gardener scene. <laughs> I... Very a, very a play. Very a play. Um... I thought it was a dream sequence because it feels like one. There's like mist yes, and all that does. and there's all this music playing. You're so right. And like Bunny McDougal is just, I don't know. I don't, maybe part of it is also that he's had this great actress who could just really deliver a line in an incredible magnetic way that just giving things to put in her mouth was just so pleasurable. Like there's the first time we even meet her, like she's at lunch with Trey and Charlotte, and she's meeting Charlotte for the first time, and um, she sort of says to him, the, the waiter comes over and tops up their drink, and she goes, oh, Peter, can you bring us more of these cheese nibbly things? And, like, the detail of, like, cheese nibbly things for a woman like that is so perfect. Yeah. And then she turns to Charlotte, and she's just like, he's older than water, but he can fix a good Manhattan. <laughs> it's just perfect, and it's sort of... It's perfect. And this whole thing, and, like, What's so interesting when you look back is that Charlotte is immediately bewitched by Bunny and thinks that Bunny is just like the absolute essence of elegance. And she sees how like how well that Bunny can control Trey when she does this thing. When she's oh, why don't you have a red wine? Better for the heart. And then she she tries and does the same thing. And she's like, oh, I can sort of emulate and fall into this sort of New York society so easily. And um, and then it's just it's just not worth it. And this thing yeah. of like of her trying to game her way into this family that's all games, right? Yeah. Like yeah. she has a structure, she has a thing, she's not going to sleep with Trey, she's going to do this, she's going to do everything. And she's going to manipulate him, And but it's going to be the kind of high status New England manipulation that everyone's okay with and understands is happening. And then yeah. it goes right up to this thing where she's already married to him and she can't even... She doesn't even know how she got here and how she lost her life so quickly. And she's sitting there while they're all playing tennis with her sister-in-law. And her sister-in-law is like, oh, let the girls play. And then the Trey's brother is like, you're wearing pastels. And <laughs> because it's just like five of them and they have to wear yeah. whites on the tennis court. And Trey says, oh, let the girls play. And then Bunny goes, oh, your father would roll in his grave. <laughs> And it's so theatre. The McDougals so are coming good. for supper. It's so, I just it's so it's a rich chocolate cake. I just want to. St- it is. It is. And do you know what? Like I want to see the whole play. <laughs> yeah. 
I actually don't think that we see enough of the McDougal play. And I think, yeah, that, that the line that I think is so... It's also so smart that the thing that is the big reveal of Trey is that he's impotent because yeah. for her, she was like, I couldn't have... I couldn't have found a more type A male. Like, mm. yeah, he's a surgeon. He's rich. He's Scottish. He's he's good. She actually at one point says, my husband can't be impotent. He's gorgeous. <laughs> like that. there's nothing more yeah. telling of how Charlotte sees the world and how she assesses things at, at surface level than the fact that the idea that she wouldn't be sexually compatible with someone because they're hot. Like, it's so insane. Yeah, yeah, it's it's completely mental, and it's it's genuinely it's quite sad. And like I I do think that um, Colin McLaughlin does bring a lot of like nuance to that character, particularly yeah. when their marriage starts breaking down. And it's it is this sort of thing where it's like, oh, you live in this world that's all rules and all games, and it's made you sick inside. You know? Yeah, totally. It's really sad. It is, and and even like that moment where she she sees that Bunny is has a, sits on the edge of the bath when he has yeah. a bath, and he says it was the only time of day when I was a child that my mother would talk to me. It's so tragic. You're so right. There's there's like such a deep well of sadness, and there's such a deep story that that like obviously we we very much have in England of like that type of upper class and those and those boys who were sent away or who were given to nannies who just like have no way of emotionally expressing themselves and are like filled with pain and loneliness. Yeah, and like it is that sort of thing and Carrie says it back in season two, but you know, Charlotte gets to go on and, and have Harry, but like what what happens to Trey? Like I worry. What happens to Trey? <laughs> yeah. Like I guess he marries Natasha eventually. I don't know. Yeah. Oh my God. Those two would be perfect. Because I don't think Natasha, Natasha probably doesn't like sex. I don't think. Do you think? Should we talk about Natasha? Because I have a lot to say. Yeah, go on. Let's talk about Natasha. 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 Najinsky or whatever her name is. <laughs> so here's why I only realized for the first time this week, which is that Natasha is as afraid of Carrie as Carrie is of her. Yeah, I feel very, very sorry for Natasha. Yeah. So do I, I think I feel more sorry for her because I have inherently connected to the fact that that actress played, like, one of the Coyote Ugly Girls. Which, <laughs> yes! Which came out a couple of years beforehand and was also set in New York. So in my head, Natasha spent, like, two summers in Coyote Ugly being a bad girl and then she had some kind of moment of severe sexual shame, invented Natasha for herself and then <laughs> married Big. Oh, um, I like that. Natasha is like Ariel after the sea witch has stolen her voice. Like she's just this big, beautiful, limpid eyed, just sort of, you know, we see her and um, I, I think the first time we see her in this series is when she, obviously we've met her at the end of season two already, but Carrie's cha- like trying on clothes with Miranda somewhere and she comes out and then there's Natasha mm. trying on some like, white shift dress or whatever and carries in her bra and naturally as you one would when you meet your you know ex-boyfriend's new wife 
is completely tripping over herself and she feels like an idiot and she feels tacky and short and um yeah tacky and short that's exactly how she feels yeah and um and and then then and sort of like you know natasha's sort of nodding and being quite arch and she's like oh you know i'm I'm going to this benefit for women in the arts. And Carrie's like, well, I'm a woman in the arts and it's all <laughs> Carrie's production. But like, you know, if you think, and then basically later in the episode, she, you know, Carrie spends sort of a thousand dollars to go to this stupid lunch that Natasha isn't even at. And it's like, Natasha has a cold. She couldn't come. And Carrie's like, I'm an idiot. And it's like, if you look back on that scene, First of all, you see that Natasha is terrified by Carrie. Like, it's not that yeah. she has this, like, superiority or coldness. It's that she's a 26-year-old who's frightened of this... Definitely. ...famous sex columnist that went out with yeah. her now husband. They went out for two yeah. years. Like, she's yeah. probably amazing in bed. She's really cool. Yeah. She has her own thing. Everyone knows who she is. Like, you can imagine that Carrie has got... I mean, Natasha has gone to all these cocktail parties being like, well, you know, he was with a sex columnist for two years. Da, da, da. And, like, she is, like, is still basically a child and she's grown up in the shadow of Carrie Bradshaw already. But Carrie wouldn't yeah. know that, obviously. And then she yeah. can't... She, she fucking bails on the lunch because she can't take the stress. Totally agree with you. Have never thought of it from that angle. And I totally agree. And actually, you're right that... Carrie Bradshaw would be your worst nightmare for you, that to be your boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. Particularly totally. because I think, yeah, because you would think she's so confident and she's so sexual and she's so powerful and she's got this great career. And also something that I think is so telling is I think that Big is exactly the kind of man who never wanted anyone to know about him and Carrie when him and Carrie t- t- were together. And then I think he walks around Manhattan mouthing off about the fact he went out with Carrie Bradshaw once they break up. Yes. Yeah. It's exactly that kind of man. And you know that he's that kind of man because when they meet at the Hamptons, one of the most intriguing lines that I think Natasha's ever given is when she meets Carrie, she says, oh, Carrie, I've heard so much about you. And when she says that, I'm like, what the fuck is, what did Big say? Mm, mm. Do you know what? Big hasn't said a thing. It's everybody else, I think. Because like, I think I think I think he hasn't said much to her. He's only he, I think he said like like three very intriguing lines that have driven driven her crazy and then made her go digging because she works yeah. at like Random House, doesn't she? Ralph Lauren. Oh, she works at Ralph Lauren. That's it. Don't you remember? She can't spell there, which is apparently <laughs> the a reason wo- to hate the her. woman's an idiot. <laughs> the woman's an idiot. I hate that bit. Don't you? I love that bit. It's my it's one of my favorite. Oh, I bits. don't like it. I really relate to it of that thing of like when you just feel like someone is your better in every way and then they make a stupid mistake. <laughs> yeah, fabulous. no, you're right. You're right. It. Yeah. But she's also, you and I have talked about N- Natasha as well because I obviously first watched that series when I was like a teeny tiny baby woman. Um, but now when I watch it, I'm like, that woman is not 26. <laughs> no. And if she is 26, she was brought up in a cult, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> she's Kimmy Schmidt, yeah. It's like, like, oh my God, she's Kimmy Schmidt. She is. Really? Yeah, it's like, like everything about her is so unbelievable as a, as a 26-year-old. But I suppose what they were trying to get, get at is they were trying to offer 
to carry. Like nothing is more painful than when you break up with someone and then you see who they go out with afterwards. Mm. And it's basically everything that is the complete opposite to you. And I hate to say that has happened with basically every man I've ever been with. That the person that they go out with straight after me and then normally marry is like, so extremely opposite to me in every single sense it is like it's a real head fuck and there's that line that makes me cry every time when Carrie sees their their wedding in the newspaper I'm so glad you brought that up but go on what's the line and she there she's having brunch with the girls and then Charlotte walks home with her and it's so lovely because Charlotte says, oh, I'm just, I want to stay with you. And Carrie's like, no, I'm fine. And Charlotte's like, no, no, let's just read. I know you're going to read it when I leave. So let's just read it together. And then she, Charlotte reads the the wedding uh, description, like the, the reportage of the wedding. And it's done in this real like New York society way of like the bride wore this and this played mm. when she when she walked down the aisle and then Carrie just holds her head in her hands and they choose this like beautiful piece of instrumental music to go over it and she just says it's not him he wasn't right for me it's everything about her she's what does he say she's like I have a, I I, lo- I love that you were affected by the same thing as me oh it makes me cry because also like oh. I I've had this thought so many times no. I've had it so many times She's like, she's like, she's this perfect, perfect girl. And she's the shiny haired Vera Wang style section. And I'm the sex columnist they run next to ads for penal implants. Is that the line you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. And I just, I know that so well of just like this obsession that we have of our evidence of how unlovable we are being in how lovable the next partner is of the person who broke our heart. Oh, yeah. God, it's so heavy. I can't talk about it too much. It's really real it's... to me. Like every relationship I've had, I've become obsessed with the next woman. And also it's really sad as well because it's like, why is that the thing that we obsess? It's like such a horrible manifestation of internalised misogyny that like that's the thing yeah. that keeps us up. That's the thing that makes us cry. That's the face that's in our head. Not the fucking man. It's it's the next woman. Yeah, it's, or the thing of like blaming the mistress rather than the man kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah. like I... I'm so glad that you brought up that scene because when I saw it, watch it again for this podcast, I was so surprised by how I felt like I had missed it before. And it's this, this small scene where, you know, Charlotte sort of following her home, as you just said, and saying, you know, well, you're going to read it when I leave and you're going to cry. So let's just read it now and sort of cry together. And it's one of those things where I've sort of like, in, in the last episode, I was not very kind to Charlotte. Um, and I still, I, if I'm totally honest, I don't think I could be friends with Charlotte. I think she's just too prissy to the point where I would stop returning her phone calls. But in this yeah. point, this part, I'm so, I'm like, oh, this is why you would be friends with Charlotte. It's because she's yeah. so, she knows, she feels pain and vulnerability in a way that is so entirely unjudgmental, in a way that you can't get from Miranda or from Samantha. And she's like, look, no. I know I would cry, and so I'm going to sit with you and we're going to cry together. And it's it's, re- it's really beautiful and it's really soft, it's beautiful. the whole thing. And she just... There's yeah, a, there's it's a, beautiful. There's a level of softness there that, like, you can't... That you, you don't get from in any other character dynamic in that show. And it's lovely to see. But what's even more beautiful about it is... You know, and they they go through the whole wedding details, 
and and they're sort of having their drinks and they're like, oh, well, that's, you know, what? Big, big is nowhere here. This is like, this isn't the wedding he would plan, meaning Carrie thinking, well, this wouldn't be the wedding he and I would have had together. Yeah. And then they go through every detail and then the, the music, that they walk down the aisle to like, I don't know, some friends. When a man loves song. a woman. It's when a man loves a woman. Yeah. That's it. And, and then Carrie goes, that's big. Yeah. And then he, it, it sort of, it, it sort of hits her in the chest. That's like, oh, this woman hasn't like finagled her way in. This isn't like some heist this 26 year old mm. has pulled. He loves mm. her. And he's the same man I knew last year, you know? And that's so, so painful. It's so painful. I really do think, like, I said it in the last episode, like, I really do think when you really think about what him and her were and how long they were together and what he put her through, I just can't, I don't know how she doesn't, like, go insane, that character, in this, like, when you actually think about what that would be like. This sort of scene, I was so struck by it when I watched it again. And then if you watch the whole Charlotte trajectory of season three, it's it becomes even more perfect. Um, because it's Charlotte reading the society pages aloud to Carrie and them commiserating as two single women of how awful it feels when these things happen. And, and the weird thing is, I don't know, maybe it sort of subliminally comes up. It's like... Charlotte and Natasha are very similar. Like, they look the same. They dress the same. Like, the the fake person Natasha is with Big is the same fake person Charlotte is when she's on dates. And then the arc of Charlotte's season is that she becomes Natasha, right? Like, she becomes a society page wedding woman. Like, even there's a point where she's negotiating her prenuptial agreement with Bunny and she uses the New York Times as her leverage. She's like, well, I could I could call off the engagement now, but of course the Times would be sort of very confused. And and sort of she and 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 Charlotte becomes increasingly prudish, in, even though she's already quite prudy anyway, as the season goes on, as her wedding to Trey becomes final, she sort of becomes even more like less tolerant of everyone's sort of like bawdiness and sexualness and she wants to be a virgin again. She wants to become Natasha and she sort of successfully does it. And then it comes to this point where Big and Carrie are having the affair. And like, yes, Aiden is the third person in the affair, but also Charlotte is the third person in the affair mm, because mm. she's not just cheating on Aiden, she's cheating on Charlotte. She's cheating on Charlotte who began this season with such hope for marriage and such commitment that love could find a way and that love can be perfect and Carrie's pissing on it a day before her wedding it's so fulfilling I think the whole character arc I think you're the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life (laughs) you're so right and also that's such a compassionate reading of what I basically see as Charlotte just being a fucking pain in the arse this series (laughs) like the way that she she makes herself this ambassador for the institution of marriage and the way that she reacts to Carrie's affair, I find like so incredibly judgmental and intolerant and not what a friend should do or be. And everything you just explained completely makes sense as to why she has that reaction. Yeah, she, she, I think she is cheating on Charlotte even more than she's cheating on Aiden. I've also just remembered something that you and I said when we were watching that episode with Bunny Mm. 
where she's doing the prenup. I think we must have been quite drunk when we were watching it because you and I have always said we find it quite random that Charlotte says, I'm worth a million. She's offered half a million for the prenup and she just out of nowhere says, I'm worth a million. And you and I had port, hit the space bar and had <laughs> had a, a, a whispered conversation about how that episode and that line was proof that feminism has gone too far. <laughs> that line that I'm worth a million is that like the fact that you're getting 500,000 if you guys get divorced isn't the sticker here it's the fact that boys are worth a certain amount and girls are worth nothing (laughs) what yeah hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Should we talk about the affair? Now we're on to the affair. The most depressing affair in in television history, I think. I love the affair. Do you love the affair? Tell me why. Okay, first of all, and this makes me 12, um, I think it's genuinely hot. (laughs) Caroline. I know, I know. But I think it's the fact that, okay. Why? Do you think think it's glam and metropolitan? (laughs) Why are these hot? <laughs> You're being very judgmental. You're being very sorry. Ca- no, I'm just so interested because maybe I you could dribble hot tea on me. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that affair this time around, just being like, bum out. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. It begins in a hot way. Although I'm, I'm always amazed at how, how like inarticulate Big is about that affair. When you, you know, there are those few episodes where he's just like calling her and mm. and like leaving her messages and then he sees her and he's like Carrie I, I've, I've got to talk to you I've got something to say and then she's like what is it and then he's like uh, 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 <laughs> yes I, uh, you put your left foot in your left foot out. and he's just suddenly like talking gibberish and it's like what mate just say I really want to fuck you and he can't even say it I'm like what a shit way to start an affair that he can't even muster the eloquence to be like I I love you, I want to fuck you and have an affair with you. I think she gives in so easily to just this blithering man who can't string a sentence together. (laughs) It's incredible how inarticulate he is. Like, the only... I feel like... When you and I watched... um, When you and I listened to that podcast, Origins, we were quite judgmental of Chris Knopf for sounding utterly unbothered, nay, resentful (laughs) over his tenure on Sex and the City. But now, looking back, I'm like... 
I don't blame you because you had no. scenes with one person and most of your scenes with that person were like repeating the last three words that she said in a funny voice. So true. It's like her going like, it's the equivalent of like her being like, do you want to go and get Italian food on Friday night? And him going, oh, well, Italian on a Friday night. <laughs> Oh it's like God. he has That's no such, interesting that, dialogue. That is, you have hacked the format <laughs> of what all of those. My worst one of that that cringes me out so much is when she rings him in the middle of the night when she won't leave that poor man alone. And she says to him, do you believe in soulmates? And he oh. just says, I like the word soul. And I like the word mate. <laughs> Give him a line. Oh my Give God. Give him a fucking line. This is a, a stupid aside, but there's a woman I follow on Twitter called Nicole Cliff, and she said she noticed that um, whenever she texts her husband and he's in the middle of a working day, he just texts her back with whatever two nouns that she said in the message. So she says, do you want to get Indian tonight and watch Fargo? And he says, Indian! Exclamation point. Fargo! Exclamation point. And that's it. <laughs> and then she looked back over her messages and he'd been doing that for 11 years. <laughs> They're so exhausted by us, men. They're I don't blame so worn. them. I don't blame them. They're so worn down, the poor loves. <laughs> so, sorry, tell me why you think the affair is hot. Is it because of that elevator scene? Okay, first of all, at my most basic sort of primordial level, I find the elevator scene sexy, which, you know, is them, this whole thing where she's in, in at a hotel because Aiden is refurbing her flat and so she goes to write in a hotel room, which I think, which I find very chic anyway, whenever people go to a hotel to write. And, uh, and then so he follows her into this lift and he wants to talk to her and all this. And it's this big thing and he's completely inarticulate and he keeps trying to grab at her and she says, fuck you, fuck you. And then fuck me. And it's just, first of all, I think because... Sarah Jessica Parker is such a classy actress and she's got very um, strict nudity clauses. For her to talk like that is quite shocking. And yeah, then, you're right, you're right. And then all those scenes of them in various states of nudity and is just quite new and we've never seen it before and it remains shocking. And it's, you know, it's very sweaty, it's very hot. So on a pure, like, primordial base level, I respond to it, you know? Yeah. But... There is something else going on in this series that makes it hot for me. Go on. And it's a bit of a reach. And we're, <laughs> we're going to all go on a journey here. But so most fans of this show interpret the fact that, you know, Big suddenly wants Carrie after he's married and after she's with Aiden because he can't have her anymore. He wants her, he can't have her. It's that sort of old thing that we're all familiar with. And I think that's real. But I think the added element here that makes Big obsessed with Carrie is because Big is obsessed with Aiden. Big yeah, wants to have sex with Aiden. You've, you've, you've pitched this to me before. Big wants to fuck Aiden. Big can't do that or admit it to himself. So he must fuck Carrie so hard he somehow penetrates her and like skewers his dick kebab style into Aiden. <laughs> You know earlier when I said the woman who lives in my head thinks I'm a moron? Yeah. I think it's probably, it's probably because of things like this podcast. <laughs> Carry on. 
Kebab skewer dick. Go on. <laughs> oh my god. Carry on because I do actually I agree with this theory. Carrie and Big meet again on a boat, right? It's like this moment where they're like from some stupid magazine launch. Charlotte brings Trey. You know, she's being Trey's being annoying. It's it's exhausting. She meets Big. They have this like stupid conversation where it's just him repeating the last two nouns she said at her again for the 500th time in a row. And it's like, oh, that was weird. And then she goes home and back to her life. And we forget about Big for a couple of episodes. But then Big comes back with Natasha uh, at Aiden's furniture show. Mm. And, you know, Carrie's there with Aiden. And they run into Big and Natasha. And Big is so thrown by how large Aiden is. And how, like, rugged he is and how he understands furniture and he's a real man and he can do things with his hands and he can make things in a way that Big can't do things. Big can't make things. Big looks stupid on the weekend and we know that already because he wears those weird, wide Bermuda shirts with the big arms (laughs) and they look frightening (laughs) and I hate them. I hate them. Big can't even have a weekend and and not look stupid. Like, that is how far from reality he is removed. And then, so, they have this really awkward exchange where he's, like, 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 you know how sometimes people um, do YouTube videos where they recut, like, dramas as if they're horrors and romances as if they're thrillers and stuff? It's like someone could really recut so much of Sex and City to be a romance about Aiden and Big. And, like... He's he's like he's like looking at him and he's like oh god and then he comes back and he like is absolutely pissed. He's he's drunk for the first time we've ever seen Big because he's met the love of his life, Aiden Shaw. <laughs> <laughs> and then he has this exchange with Carrie, which I sent to you and is the deep dive of this season, I think. If you will kindly go to your emails. <laughs> Let let's put on our theatrical McDougal yeah. voice. <laughs> The McDougals are coming for supper. The McDougals are coming for supper. I'm quite drunk now. I've had like two double whiskeys. I know. Me too. Me too. (laughs) Okay. Where's Paul Bunyan? If you're referring to my boyfriend, he's doing business. Ooh, he's a biggin. (laughs) He's a biggin. (laughs) This theory has legs, Caroline. Where did he learn to whittle like that? How many drinks have you had? Not nearly enough. So, how are you? I'm great. And Daniel Boone, is he a nice guy? His name's Aiden. Where's your sense of humour? Where's your wife? <laughs> Guarding her bed on the silent auction. She's got her eye on a beige chair. Everything in my apartment is now beige. Beige is bullshit. <laughs> I love drunk big so much. I love drunk big. And then and then she says this line, which I think is so good. And it's that line that you wish you had said to your ex-boyfriend during that time. Yeah, yeah. And she goes, I thought you wanted beige. Meaning Natasha is beige. Meaning I am beautiful and vivid and you married yeah. a beige woman. Yeah, well, it doesn't quite fit. Have you got a smoke? I quit. We always used to share a cigarette together. (laughs) I'm quite attracted to you in your big voice, actually. (laughs) 
We did a lot of things that were bad for me together. Okay, now you, now you have to roll up a magazine and say it into it. I have a secret to tell you. It's not working. I'm getting out. If you know anyone who's interested, you should keep that to yourself. No one is interested in that information. Ugh. And then it's the best hard cut after that to her being like so lofty and imperious to her sitting with all the girls being like, Big's leaving his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so realistic. Also, Samantha's reaction is so good. Samantha as a friend in this series is so good. She's so realistic as the friend that you would go to when Carrie admits that she's having an affair. And mm. she says, do you not judge me just a little bit? And then she just says, not my style and gives her a little wink Samantha winking just like undoes me for some reason (laughs) when she's like being sweet to Carrie and winks at her I'm like every woman needs a friend like that Um, but yeah when she goes and and she she tells Samantha that she saw that she saw them at the furniture show they all they all talk about it and she's like well let's let's face it you won and then she says what's that thing she's like so what did she look like (laughs) It's just like such a specific type of female friend. I think my theory checks out and it continues throughout the season where it's like Big being like, I can smell him on your sheets. I can smell him. And like, it's like, is this his dog? Is this it? And he's like obsessed with Aiden and it's erotic and I love it. Yeah, no, you're right. And also it, it peaks in series four with with like the best performance from Chris North when him and Aiden actually come yes. come to blows. And yes. that's the crescendo of your theory. It's like, what's that um what's that famous Oliver Reed film? Women in Love? Where they wrestle in the mud together, naked. It's like a oh, famous homoerotic. Yeah, it's like a famous homoerotic scene, and you literally have Aiden and Big in series four wrestling each other in mud. Fit, fizz. I'm glad that I finally got that out of my system because I've been thinking about that for years. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. I think you're a genius. Obviously, you. my theory on the affair is that it proves that. Affairs, I don't think, are a crisis of a relationship. I think they're a crisis of self. Because oh, yeah. every time, like, the the affair scenes with Big and Carrie, I'm amazed re-watching it, how little fun they seem to have. It's so functional. It's so perfunctory. It's mm. so just about sex in a way that, like, doesn't even feel that enjoyable. They don't hang out. Like, if I was having an affair... I'd be like, there'd be conversation, there'd be chat, there'd be drinks, there'd be trips away, there'd be like fun. And it just feels so not that. Like they don't chat at all. Yeah, it feels like something they have to do, right? Yeah. And actually the most, when I talk to friends who've had affairs with married people or married people I know who've had affairs and I ask them what the kind of contents of the conversation is when they're not fucking, it always seems to be basically a breakdown and analysis of who they are respectively, who they are together, who, what the marriage is and who they could be if they were together. It's this like space of narcissism and navel gazing, basically. Oh, that's so interesting. 
And there's literally a line where Carrie, like they just don't talk in those affair scenes. And there's one line where Carrie just says, who are we? And actually, it just feels like this, that's what the that's what the function of an affair is. I think it's actually like a space in which to have a personal identity crisis because you get to just talk about yourself and your relationship and this new potential relationship. All, like, do you know what I mean? When I talk to people who have affairs, it just feels like all they endlessly do is analyze each other. Oh, that is. I've never thought about it that way, but you're completely right. It is a place where narcissism can thrive. It's a kind of free, toxic therapy because it it gives you this whole space to be like, well, you know, my mother and this and blah, and like you have, you both of you have uttered. I've never been in an affair on either end, but like you have utterly free reign to just talk about the the things that made you bad, that made you this way. So I don't think we can talk about series three without talking about the absolute iconography of those LA episodes, which are, I think, the sort of the platonic ideal of taking your TV show and putting it in another city for a few episodes. I think it's so well done. It's so entertaining. I love those episodes. I love them. And I think it's a way of examining what the career and life trajectory of a character like Carrie Bradshaw, who's a columnist, like a cult columnist. It's a way of examining what would happen in those preceding years that still feels like strangely accessible. Yes. Yes. And I think as well, not to jump ahead too much, because I want to really live through the lusciousness of those episodes. The thing of... Her being asked out to LA to um, adapt her columns, potentially, to have a meeting with Matthew McConaughey, who's sort of bizarrely interested in her and has his own production company, and then having this weird meeting, and then her kind of being a little bit weirded out and sort of standing him up. When I was, you know, a teenager, it felt weird and fucked up. As As an adult, it felt weird and fucked up. But now as a 30-year-old who has been in the creative industries and within media for the last six years, I'm like, yep, that's how it goes. That is perfectly observed, top to bottom. There's nothing out Mm. of place. Zero notes, you know? Yeah, zero notes. Because it's like basically examining the existential head fuck that is facing the fact that you're not only career and professional identity, but the thing that pays all of your bills is your personality, your decisions, (laughs) who you are, Mm -hmm. the things you've done, your friendship group. It's really complicated. And like that, that moment where she's... I think Matthew McConaughey does such a good job of that cameo. Uh, Man, woman, walking the earth. roaming the earth it's so good and also that moment in the development meeting where he's like why is Carrie so fucked up yeah and Carrie's like just sitting there and then it's like this layer of artistic sophistication that she's in LA she's in LA to like escape this affair and this breakup and then she goes walking around the the film studio and she ends up like 
on the set of a brownstone mm. sitting on her doorstep having a cigarette and it's like this is a beautiful metaphor of the fact that like you can leave your city but you can't escape who you are and you can't escape your problems and it's like and everything leading up to it is exactly like those development meetings like I've never written a memoir but I have had you know various meetings with sort of people from that world about how we can adapt things and it's always that thing with Sarah Michelle Gellar where there's like this really aggressive shiny person who is like trying to get you really hyped and just throwing these random names at you and I also I love seeing Carrie in those situations because I love the way that Carrie knows everyone in New York and she knows everyone in fashion but she doesn't know the name of a single actress like and there's a moment where she's like um where, where um Sarah Michelle Gellar who's great in this role is like no guess guess again and she goes um I don't yeah. know that that Jennifer loves something girl I just love yeah. that so it's much. It's so good. But like it's it's top to toe. It's so accurate, the whole thing. And it's also that sense of when as a writer, like a columnist or an author, you're then brought in to develop something, they have to make you get into this like toddler state of confidence. Yes. And the way that they do it is by is by like bombing you with compliments that feel so extreme and disingenuous and actually like quite disassociative of like because they need to do that to get you to sign up with Mm -hmm. them and to get you to commit to the project but it's like it's such a strange thing those development meetings because they have to get you to this place of supreme confidence to get you to commit to the project but that all that chat to get you there feels disingenuous embarrassing dissociative um strange yeah and also you'd have to be you'd have to be feeble and dumb to believe it but it's in you're incapable of moving forward unless you do believe it it's the ultimate sort of Dorothy and Oz situation where in order for all of you in the room, so you, you as the writer and therefore the person who holds the intellectual property, the producer, the development executive, all these people, you all need to delude yourselves into the same level of like, well, this could be, you know, big opening weekend, like chiclet big, blah, you know, this whole thing. You all (laughs) need to sort of whip yourselves up into this sort of big fervor in order because lie and, and lie yeah and just sort of convince yourself of this fantasy land because it, the that sort of um fervor isn't just important in the moment so you sign with them it's important that you sustain it so then you can all go on as a team to sell the project for possibly many years and it's just yeah. this and, and when you're in those situations and like obviously there are lots of smart clever incredibly talented people who work in development and I'm, you know, work with lots of them and, and it's, it makes you feel hollow and strange and strained and not like a person. And it's very, it's very interesting, I think. It's a very interesting mode of work and, and lends itself well to sort of metaphor. Although I must say, as strange as it has felt, I definitely would not, not turn up to a meeting <laughs> In LA, when the company have paid for me and all my mates to yeah. be there. <laughs> Quite baffling. Quite baffling. I also think this is some like great Miranda-isms from this episode as well. 
And we've kind of, we've largely skipped over Miranda this season, but Cynthia Nixon has some absolute gems in season three. My favourite being her, her as a stewardess. In truth, it's a lonely oh. life. <laughs> My favourite line, but maybe said by any actress ever. Um, and also her with the, um, her trying to be sexy in LA is great. Her like on the mechanical bull with her shirt flying open is just, it's the ultimate like how you think you are when you're trying to seduce someone versus how you actually look. It's like this sort of like white worm totally being pelted forward. <laughs> it's so triggering. Also, Miranda in the Staten Island episode does some of the most extraordinarily Extraordinary. robotic dancing I've ever seen. There's something about Miranda. We've talked about this in the last episode and about like what happens when she tries to be sexual that is so ripe for comedy, but also so deeply, deeply relatable. Like, I don't think I've ever related more to the, to a Sex and the City character than when she goes on a date with maybe the most good-looking man I've ever seen in my entire life. The, the, the policeman. The when she... Yeah. Yeah. And she's can't fathom the fact that someone so attractive would want to go on a date with her. And when she takes him home, she, she gets so pissed to, to yeah. you know, <laughs> whip herself up to do it. And when she gets home, she shouts... I may be no Mina Suvari, but I'm great in bed. I just feel like every girl. And it's also that that line in the same episode where she's like, I love my life. I love my friends. (laughs) Miranda tried. Although Monica texted me the other day and I think she's right. She was like, when Miranda is comfortable and confident and there is that moment in LA when she's doing it, when she first gets there. And she's flirting. There is no better flirter when she's being like smart and cute and sexy. She's great at flirting. Yeah, yeah. she really is. You, re- Yeah, you really do want to get to know her more. She is like, when she's got it all switched on, fantastic. You can see why she like gets laid as often as she does. Like, despite the fact that she yeah. hates yeah. people. <laughs> Carrie's problem is she hates men. <laughs> and Miranda's problem is that she hates people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> Okay, I think we should briefly touch on some Samantha-isms that come to the fore. I think for some reason, Samantha, when biographical details are revealed about her, and quite a few of them are revealed in season three, it makes me really excited Mm. the way, like, I feel like I'm reading sort of a 1950s short story kind of thing. And it's yes. very like a small town girl who broke out. And I think maybe because... 100%. And it really is full throttle, this series, these little nuggets that are dropped about like the shadow of Samantha's beginnings. A kind of a, kind of a sort of a tacky, sort of lower middle class, but yeah. Americana, very Bruce Springsteen-y thing. The nuggets that we get in this series about Samantha are the most that we get so far. They really try and flesh yes. her out here, but with very tiny little things. Um, so it starts off where she, early in the season, mentions the fact that, you know, her, when her mother was her age, she had three kids and a drunk husband. Yes, yes, I picked up on that. Yeah, which, you know, sort of has a bit of melancholy to it. And then 
a couple of episodes later when she's sick, she has this sort of like cough syrup medication that she she has where it's just like Fanta and cough syrup and like some mental ingredients that are put in a blender together. And it's what her mother would always give her when she was sick. She talks about in The Hot Child in the City, one of my favourite episodes, because I think it's just so funny and so charming, um, about how she worked in the Dairy Queen when she was young. Mm. Mm. And then I think in the... LA episodes, yes. When they go to the Playboy Mansion. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's about how she always fantasised about Playboy bunnies because she would always read her mother's... Or no, she would always read her father's Playboys. Yeah. Yeah. And like all of these little nuggets, even though they feel so randomly dispersed and so like come up with at the spur of the moment in a writer's room, feel like they come together to make a really recognisable backdrop that would perfectly map onto this character of like slightly ignored middle child who learns to relate to their father through the people that he wants to have sex with and then Mm. she takes this sort of like all this bottled up like i'm i'm the prettiest daughter energy into the world and becomes a sexually precocious kid and also wants to further herself from like the shackles of her mother who's making cough syrup out of fanta in a blender like it's quite sad and really rich it's very Truman Capote. Yeah, oh my God, it really is. It's very that book swan song. And it's, it, we really never, after season three, get more background info. Maybe we do again and we, no. can, we can shout it when we see it. But No, this is, this is I like... it's so tantalising. So do I. So do I, because she is an extraordinary character. So it would take an extraordinary upbringing. That's exactly it. I think it's also that thing where... Um, the similar version of it is when Charlotte reveals she was a teen model for Ralph Lauren. Yes, yeah. But in but like an in-store model and it's just so perfect. It's like, oh, of course. Yeah. Also, of while course. we're talking about Charlotte and Samantha, one of the great losses of this series, I think, is Charlotte's wedding, which is an <gasps> amazing episode. Yeah. Why was there not a reunion shag between Charlotte's brother and Samantha? Wesley and Leslie. Yeah, we should have seen Wesley. We should have seen Wesley. That, that episode is mad to me as well because, and you and I talked about this a lot, but the the thing of there is an absolute there's a there's a conversation in the preparation for that wedding before Samantha between Samantha and Charlotte that would end any other female friendship, which is like which which kind of culminates in Charlotte yelling at Samantha, um, I didn't even want you to be a bridesmaid. I just didn't want you to feel left out. Yeah. <sighs> I know. And it also is one of my favourite ever Samantha lines where she's standing, being fitted for a bridesmaid's dress and she wants the hem to be higher. And Charlotte Mm. says, and she's being a real brat about it, and Charlotte says all the bridesmaid skirts have to be the same length. And completely seriously, Kim Cattrall says, what about tray skirt? (laughs) In reference to his kilt. So good. Okay, really? What about Tracer? So good. All right, so man of the season, who are your nominees? Bill Kelly! Bill Kelly! Of course, I mean, honestly, I'm with you. Like, I don't want to, I don't want any woman out there to feel like we need you to place yourself under a fountain of piss to find true love. That's not what we're saying. All we're saying is, is that she does throw a good man away over a little bit of urine. Yeah. Bill Kelly, number one man, number one man in this series, in the show. 
in life forever. <laughs> I love him. I, I love, love him. him. Yeah, I love um, him. Some other, do you have any other nominees? Uh, the Fit Gardener um, mm-hmm. in The McDougals Are Coming for Supper. <laughs> <laughs> the McDougals Are Coming for Supper, yes. Um, he, that Fit Gardener is so fit that he's almost like the cover of a romance novel in the 70s. Very like, that. He feels like waxy and sort of like shiny to the point where he's, it's almost hard to fancy him. Yeah, yeah. He feels it's, unreal. It's, impenetrable yeah uh the hot detective and i think that's it for me what about you miranda miranda shagged some hot people in this season yeah she um she doesn't shag him but that guy that she gets with who she gets braces in between him asking her out on their first date is very cute oh he's cute yeah very very sweet um i also have a certain fondness for power lad which is of absolutely no surprise to you. Your fondness for Power Lad and my repulsion <laughs> to Power Lad confirms to me that if we had ever been single at the same time, you and I would never have had a row about men. <laughs> no, never. We would never have gone for the same guy. You love Power Lad. He's so not hot. I know, I know, but I just, I just love anyone who's easy and fun kind of thing. And like, I really don't need this sort of like great drama or attention from romance at all. It's the same thing where it's like... So true, that is the fundamental difference between you and I, I think. It really, it it truly is. And when you were earlier on, when you were talking about... The women who live in your head, like the um, particularly the the your Natasha as like your the the women who your exes have gone on to be with. I've never looked at those women. I've never um, read a bad review on like my Goodreads or my Amazon because I always filter it to five stars, <laughs> so I never have to see those reviews. Like I am so good at protecting myself in a bubble of deceit. <laughs> no 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 it's not it's not you're healthy and you like yourself it's fucking amazing and i love it i don't think it is because like no it is it is but if i look at the first sort of like seven years of the people i went out with they were all a succession of power lads basically of just like just nice men in in comic book stores (laughs) but like the thing is is that i you think that's me being healthy and liking myself. And yes, it is. And I do like myself for the most part. But a lot of it was also, I wanted to be Wonder Woman. I wanted to be this person who would like march in in their little dress and be like, wow, bet you've never met someone like me before. And like, that is just narcissism, (laughs) you know? So I wouldn't give me too many medals. Oh no, I'll give you a medal for that. I think yeah, I think you're totally. I think such a like you and I are so similar, and such a spiritual difference between us can be summarised with Power Lad. <laughs> it really can be. Um, scooting in heels. Um, another person I have a huge amount of fondness for this season. I want to give him a brief shout out because we talked about him a lot last episode, and this is already long enough as it is. But I think Steve is so fucking hot this season, like. David I uh, David Eigenberg I think is his, the actor's name. He's so he looks like um like a renaissance muse in this season I think with his like beautiful curly hair and his kind of roman profile. The retrousse nose. He's got a perfect face. That sculptured face is yes. is 
that sculptured face with that sort of curly hair is just yeah. so gorgeous to me. Actually, he would have been very good back in the day to play um, Max, the romantic lead in Ghosts, I think. That is sort of the oh, sort yeah, of face he would. Yeah, yeah. I imagine. The thing is, though, oh, any sexual impulse that I might have for Steve is completely retracted in this series with that basketball storyline it's that is my worst nightmare going out with a man like that i have to say re-watching this series and seeing miranda working so hard to make partner and him like bothering her being like let's buy a puppy <laughs> and like, that is my that is my idea of hell a boyfriend like that yeah i think that might be where you and i differ <laughs> you love him i love him she's so busy why won't you leave her alone um outfit of the season so i think that this season is the worst for fashion my three dissertation titles for this season and its fashion choices are the saddlebag and corsage tragedy of series three the sadness of miranda's floating necklaces and Miranda's mullets, a journey of humiliation through hairstyling. I don't think the clothes, I don't know what was going on with Patricia Field in this season. I don't think the clothes are very good. That being said, the John Galliano newspaper dress, which I have spent 10 years looking for on eBay, is one of the most iconic outfits on TV of all time. And I also loved her brown sequin caftan that she wore to the Playboy Mansion. So I think you're right in that there isn't a lot of like huge statement outfits in this series. And like, I do think that the colors are a little bit louder overall, but I do think that like Carrie does have lots of really nice, like casual wear in this series. I think there's lots of like hot pants and boob tubes, especially towards the end of the season. Um, it, it feels like a lovely kind of midsummer time towards the last sort of three or four episodes where she's like wearing nothing and we can you know be the horrible men that we are perving on Sarah Jessica Parker's beautiful body um and in particular in the very last episode which I don't love cockadoodaloo actually I mean let's not even say don't love I don't like it at all it's awful it's like this it's a, I'm sure any everyone knows what we're talking about um this episode where Carrie has um, these chickens on her roof that are waking her up and there are roosters on, on her roof. And then it's like this parallel is um, these trans sex workers who live outside of Samantha's building who are, you know, keeping her up at night. And it's just really gross because we, we like begin the season with like Samantha being really excited to move to the meatpacking district because it's this cool gay neighborhood. And like, well, but the reality of it is, is that Samantha's a rich PR executive who is helping to gentrify this typically gay neighborhood. And that is not touched on at all. These these women who are outside her building are the original citizens of that neighborhood and they're being gentrified out and their perspective is not touched on at all. They're just depicted as kind of like, like loud, shrieking animals. And it's unbelievably transphobic and very disturbing. Yeah. Totally. And also, as you said, nothing is touched on the fact that like maybe Samantha's the irritant. Yeah. Like she's the she's the she's the invader and the irritant, not those citizens who have 
you know, created that neighbourhood and lived there for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And and where that street was probably thoroughfare for a long time as well. And she she's moved in there. Like, you can't even say yeah, that, like, yeah. oh, Samantha was living on the street for a long time. And then this other thing comes along. It's like, no. <laughs> and that's never touched on. Yeah. It's so infuriating and horrible. And beyond it being an offensive episode, I just think it's a really bad finale episode. I really don't like that that episode at all. Yeah. I think the only thing that's thematically good about that episode is that it's about wake up calls. Um, yeah. And, and yes. Which I only really understood that when I watched it for the, you know, 16,000th time, because it's about, <laughs> you know, it has, it has that sort of scene where Miranda and um, Carrie are in the thrift shop and they have this like really aggressive moment with each other that kind of happens in real friendships where you've kind of stored up this thing on your friend for a long time. And you know, she says, you know, if you get yeah. back with Big, you know, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I can't take your calls. I won't do it. And then Carrie kind of just snaps. Well, you're going to throw away me like you threw away Steve. And it's like, wow, that was like 11 mm. episodes ago, <laughs> you know? And then, and then we have this thing with Big and Carrie where they sort of have this awakening where they're like, oh, we're, you know, just because we're now no longer attached, it doesn't really mean we're going to get together. It's just, it's him and his big red wall. Um, Another instalment of the very fake friendship of Big and Carrie, because because you and I, sweet friend, are just like that red ah! wall. When she calls him sweet friend, sweet friend. <laughs> but I hate. I wrote that down as well. I hate it. I hate, hate it. it. I hate it. Um, however, the reason I brought this episode up is that she does look fucking gorgeous at the end when she does her little twirl on the roof oh yeah she looks like a 50s mgm movie star yeah and those like high-waisted almost like a liberty print little hot pants yes yes and a little kind of like knotted shirt and uh yeah she just looks fabulous and it's like you know what this is a horrible episode but uh patricia field showed up to work so (laughs) she did and actually interestingly i remember watching um I think it might have been in that truly appalling program called Inside the Actors Studio. Have you watched it? I actually have. <laughs> yes. And I've watched Sarah Joseph Parker's episode, Awful. weirdly. So did yeah. I. I think it might have been in that episode. It was some sort of interview with Sarah Jessica Parker. I remember watching as a teenager. And it was her, like, in between takes for that episode, wearing that outfit. And they're like, oh, you look, and it's really, the, these shorts are more like just knickers. Mm. And the interview, the journalist's like, oh, you look great. What a great outfit. And she looks appalled and she's like, what self-respecting 30-something woman do you know who would walk around New York dressed like this? <laughs> I do think Sarah Luca Parker is a bit of an old woman sometimes when she talks about Carrie. She is. She And do you know why I think she is? I think it's because Sarah Jessica Parker is a very, very serious, hardworking, theatrical performer. Like she was a theatre kid. She's been working since she was two years old. She's incredibly bookish. She's been married for eternity. And I think she feels like she has to really defensively make it known to everyone that she's not a woman who pays $500 for shoes and fucks everyone that moves. Yeah. <laughs> like, doesn't do any work. I think she She's like so keen to separate herself from that character because she feels so different from that character. Because I agree, she's quite dour about yeah. about Carrie sometimes. Yeah, I yeah, and like I so I, I do get it. She, it is one of these things where she's going to live and die with this role. It's ne- like it's it's yeah. going to be in the second sentence of her obituary, Carrie Bradshaw. You know. 
and that must be a weird thing to live with but have fun with it you know (laughs) (laughs) um that's exactly the advice that samantha jones would give sarah jessica parker by the way honey enjoy it (laughs) (laughs) don't take yourself so seriously my god yeah um that brings us neatly on to the Carrie Clanger of the season. And I think I've actually just named one of my Carrie Clangers, which is the sweet friend moment. Mm-hmm. Because sweet friend. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Mine is, um, and I think you might feel the same, mine is when she gate crashes Natasha's lunch and drinks her wine. <laughs> Mental. That scene is extraordinary. Insane. Insane. And... What I like about that scene as well, first of all, because it gives Natasha a lot of autonomy and a lot of credibility. And like, Natasha is the victor of that scene. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is great. Um, But also it has like a lot of parallels to like the the mid-season scenes when Big is trying to get Carrie's attention and every time he gets it, he doesn't know what to say. It's like she goes, at one point she goes and she meets him in the lobby and she's like, what, what do you want to say? And he's like, <laughs> and and it's like the same here with Carrie. She's like she's she's trapped Natasha in the situation. She's going to explain yeah. herself, and then she realizes that her, it's a, it's inexplicable. Like she all she can say is I'm sorry about your marriage and my part in it. And it's like there's no. I, I, we've spoken about this before. Of like the thing about Carrie and Big is that they're both convinced that they can talk their way into and out of any situation. Yeah, but when you put them in these situations, they're utterly. Facile, you know, Use, useless. Yeah, flaccid. Yeah. And then, and then uh, Natasha does this amazing "I'm sorry" speech that every girl will know off by heart, where she's where she says, "Carrie, I'm sorry," and it's she sort of wrong foots her, and then she's like, "I'm sorry that I ever met him. I'm sorry," and she like reels off, and it's so beautifully done, and it's just like pure shade being thrown at Carrie. And then I remember when I had this like very depressing blog when I was. <laughs> Yet another parallel between you and I, yes. (laughs) I remember I would like have these very lacklustre conversations with teenage boys and then I would like put them, like reword them for my blog as if it were like a scene from a, you know, from Sex and City. And I remember writing about this like speech that I'd given my first boyfriend of like, you know, how regretful I was that I'd met him and some fucking girl commented underneath me like your speech your boyfriend sounds suspiciously like the speech Natasha gives to Carrie in Sex in the City series series three wow found out found out yeah my god I would love to know what your like exact words were like we were like I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry that I chipped a tooth and the thing that the thing that gets me about that scene even more and that whole Natasha like denouement is that um I have recently lost a tooth. And yes. I, I got my my tooth was sort of bashed out of my head, my front tooth, like basically the exact same tooth that Natasha loses. And I'm so like that happened a year ago and I'm finally getting the permanent replacement like next week. I've had like various fake tooths it's been a whole saga and I know how expensive and painful it is and so when Natasha says those several expensive and painful (laughs) dental procedures this tooth is still a slightly different colour to this one I feel it in my bones I'm like yes (laughs) what's that fabulous line she ends with 
Not only have you ruined my marriage, you've ruined my lunch. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. And then Carrie redeems herself. You're like, Carrie, mate, what are you doing, girlfriend? Then she redeems herself because <laughs> she walks out in the John Galliano newspaper dress in slow motion with her tits bouncing like Bilio. <laughs> that is the fittest slow-mo walk I've ever seen. <laughs> tits bouncing like Bilio. <laughs> Yeah, that's the dolly clanger of the episode. (laughs) So this has been season three of Sentimental in the City. Join us next week for season four. Very excited. Don't know about you. My favourite season, I think. My favourite season. I can't wait to talk about it. And we'll, we'll see you all then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.